This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with philosopher and diver Peter Godfrey-Smith. Peter is a professor in the School of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney. He joined me to discuss his new book, Metazoa, Animal Minds and the Birth of Consciousness. In this discussion, Peter explains how conscious experience evolved from animals in the sea. He does this by introducing us to some of the fascinating creatures that he encounters on his scuba dives. These creatures include sponges, soft coral, banded shrimp, giant cuttlefish, and hermit crabs. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the show Peter Godfrey-Smith, who is a professor in the School of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney. And Peter is the author of many books, including uh, the best-selling book, Other Minds, The Octopus and the Evolution of Intelligent Life, which was shortlisted for the 2017 Royal Society Science Book Prize. Uh, Peter has also written other texts, including Theory and Reality, An Introduction to the Philosophy of Science, as well as Darwinian Populations and Natural Selection, which won the 2010 Lakatos Award for an outstanding work on the philosophy of science. And today I'm going to be speaking with Peter about his new book that's just recently been released. It's called Metazoa, Animal Minds and the Birth of Consciousness. And it's out through William Collins, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And uh, I welcome Peter now and thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, Peter, I've certainly come across your work before, particularly other minds, and I know that octopuses hold a great interest and curiosity for many people, obviously, because they're so visually distinct and interesting, but similarly, because their behavior, as we might come to understand, is very interesting and complex. And that's something that you yourself explore in great depth in other minds, Um, but you also do pick that up in this book. First up, though, I'd love to get a sense of your particular scholarly interests in philosophy and how that has been matched up with your interest in diving and um, your interest in understanding such creatures like the octopus, but also, uh, for example, the giant cuttlefish. Well, for a long time, I worked in a mixture or a combination, rather, of philosophy of biology which is a part of the philosophy of science, and philosophy of mind, uh, which is concerned with trying to understand how the mind might fit into the world as a whole. I worked on those two areas, and there was always some connection between them. But one connection that I hadn't made was a connection to some particular kind of animal or some particular kind of organism. Uh, Like a lot of philosophers, I approached it all in a somewhat abstract way. And this changed when I began to spend a bit more time in the water uh, about 15 years ago now. So I was working in the US. I spent most of my career working in American universities and began coming back to Australia, to Sydney specifically, a bit more often. And although I'd always done a little bit of scuba diving, I began to do more and in particular began to spend some time in a marine reserve just north of Sydney, the, the Cabbage Tree Bay Reserve. Uh, near Manly, essentially. 
And there I came across giant cuttlefish and after that octopuses and began to make some connections between firstly the general questions about biology I'd been interested in, secondly questions about what kind of thing a mind is and what kind of thing experience is, and thirdly just what it's like to be around these animals and what these particular kinds of creatures are like. Uh, so it was really around that time that I began to knit them all together and the book Other Minds and then the book Metazoa came out of that out of that knitting together. And what in particular struck you about the giant cuttlefish and how they behave? It was it was a really intense experience. I'd sort of bumped into them once or twice in the water before, but then uh, at Manly, you know, quite some time ago now, I met a couple of individuals who had a combination of two features. Now, firstly, it's, it's probably worth describing what these animals are like for those who haven't come across them. They're big, first of all. They can get up to three feet long, look a little bit like an octopus attached uh, to a turtle, roughly speaking. And they can change colour in the most extraordinary ways. Uh, They're really the colour change champions, I would say, of the animal kingdom. They can change their colour in less than a second and can produce uh, pretty much any any color. So their body is a, is a huge video screen. And that, when I, when I began to come across it in the water, certainly made an impression on me. And the second thing that made an impression was the fact that in some cases, not all, they seemed as interested in me as, as I was in them. They're, they're quite engaged and curious animals uh, when they encounter divers. In some cases, not always, not all individuals, but some of them do seem to have a kind of interest in the foreign bodies that we are, just as we have a kind of interest of that sort in them. And in terms of cuttlefish, giant cuttlefish in particular, are they a cephalopod as well as octopus? Yes. So giant cuttlefish are more closely related to squid than to octopuses, but those three are all fairly closely related. So the, the cephalopods... That's a group of mollusks, which includes those three pretty well-known animals, plus one or two others. Also the nautilus, uh, which has a shell, an external shell, unlike octopuses and giant cuttlefish. And there were many more in the past, but those are the most conspicuous living representatives of this this kind of odd experiment within the, the mollusk part of the animal kingdom. And it does remind me of a a section in the chapter on octopuses when you were discussing the behaviour of cuttlefish and that, for example, they're often quite aware of other beings, including other humans. Um, And when they were in a marine biological laboratory in Massachusetts, they had actually been kind of aware of, I think it was one of the scientists, and they'd actually done this like playful game, I guess, from our perspective, where they were shooting or squirting water at the person when their back was turned, but then, you know, going back to the bottom of the tank when the person turned back around again. And that's a kind of thing that humans would be very intrigued by and see themselves in behaviour like that. Yes, it's, it's a lovely story. There are lots of stories like this with octopuses. Plenty of people who keep octopuses have claimed that when your back's turned, you might get drenched 
with a squirt of water. And also that some octopuses take a, either a liking or a dislike to some particular individual human. So if there, are, if there are people who give them food, as opposed to people who come to sort of bother them and clean the tank, they'll often be treated quite differently. Now, in the case of octopuses, it did turn out that there was a real kind of memory for individuals present. There was a nice experiment done a few years ago by Roland Anderson and Jennifer Mather, where they worked out that octopuses could actually learn to distinguish between individual humans, even when they were wearing the same clothes. So octopuses have a bit of a track record in this. I was very struck to learn, though, that cuttlefish, as you say, have that kind of almost playful engagement with humans as well in captivity. The guy who told that story, Brett Grassi, he's the guy who runs the cephalopod tanks and lab uh, out in Massachusetts at Woods Hole. So he knows a lot about these animals. He's, he's been around more cephalopods than just about anybody. And he reckons he's come to think that those little cuttlefish really have a, a, a quite, quite complicated engagement uh, with the people around them, as exhibited by that uh, habit they have of squirting people when their backs are turned. And do you think that cuttlefish, for example, perhaps wouldn't have the opportunity to interact with humans or perhaps humans wouldn't have the opportunity to interact with cuttlefish to the extent that we do with um, mammals, for example, on land? And is that why perhaps we haven't understood or appreciated some of these behaviours in cephalopods, for example, and only really in more recent times? I certainly think that. In the case of cuttlefish and giant cuttlefish in particular, it's really surprising how little is known about these animals. Uh, they're not studied very much. There are some people who study them, uh, a couple of people in Australia, Alexandra Schnell, for example, who's uh, pushing that work ahead quite uh, vigorously. But, you know, you could list the number of people studying them on, on, on one hand, I would say. And there's been just a, a real gap in our knowledge. In the case of birds, there are countless amateurs as well as many professional biologists observing every nuance of their behaviours. In the case of octopuses, they've been a lab animal, both for good and for ill, for quite a long time. There's been a lot of neuroscience and laboratory work done on octopuses. But octopuses are very awkward to study in the wild because they're so elusive. They're so, they're so good at hiding from you. They never do what you want them to do or they're never where you want them to be. And in the case of cuttlefish, there just seems to have been this gap. There's just been very little work done on them. And they are a truly extraordinary animal, which is under our noses here in Australia, has been under our noses all this time. Mm, yeah, reading about them really made me want to start scuba diving because <laughs> all of your stories about um, these wonderful creatures just sound so fascinating. And also the fact that as you say, a lot of them have individual variations in their temperaments. And so they're not a kind of homogenous group of species in a sense. They have individual differences that uh, we human beings would be expected to have. Yes. And that's true in two senses. Uh, firstly, from one species to another within octopuses, there's enormous variation. And when scientists spend a bit of time around more than one species, they often are quite struck by you know, how different they are. David Scheel from Alaska is probably the biologist 
who I collaborate with mostly, and he's an expert on the giant Pacific octopus, these enormous 100-pound octopuses that hang out in cold waters, essentially up around Alaska, Washington State, places like that in the U.S., And he now takes a strong interest in our local octopuses as well, especially the Sydney or Gloomy octopus, which also is down in Victoria. Um, And David was out here a few years ago getting to know them and was involved in a project that involved catching and then releasing some, uh, catch them, tag them and release them. And he was amazed at how, how pugnacious our octopuses were and how physically strong they were, uh, how acrobatic even compared to octopuses he'd come across before. So he he said to me at one point that Australia has ninja octopuses, <laughs> kind of martial arts exponents. So there's that fact. And then there's, I suppose, the more surprising fact that even within a species, you can have considerable variation between one individual and another. Well, I say it's surprising, but in a way when I say that, I have my biologist hat on because Individual personality is regarded as fairly special, Mm. as something to sort of look for rather critically uh, within behavioral biology. But from the point of view of someone who just hangs out with animals, either with their pets or with farm animals or with with other sorts of animals, of course, the idea of different personalities is not particularly surprising. And in retrospect, it would be odd if there were all little carbon copies of each other with respect to their behavior. Octopuses, though, and giant cuttlefish, it's probably fair to say, have a kind of specialness in their level of difference from one to the other. So you can encounter encounter octopuses or cuttlefish of the same sex, the same species, same age, you know, in the same waters. And one of them will treat you with a kind of engaged curiosity. Uh, One might try to eat you. Another one might treat you with a kind of absolutely perfect indifference, you know, a kind of studied refusal to admit that you're there at all. And these all just seem to me to be individual quirks of behavior, most likely. I think that's, I think that's just how it is with these animals. Well, it is interesting in that in that regard and and also interesting when we're looking at this new book. I want to particularly ask how you got from studying the octopus in great depth and thinking about it in great depth from this philosophical perspective but also from your own personal experiences I guess, engaging with them and also observing their behaviour up close and at a distance. So how did you get from that book to this new book, Metazoa, in an intellectual sense? What kind of issues were you thinking through that you felt could be explored in new ways in this new book? The feature that both ties the two books together and also marks the distinction between them is the the tree of life, the genealogical tree of ancestry and descent that links all life on earth and in particular all animals on earth. Uh, If you think of yourself in relation to any other animal, living or dead, or in fact any other living thing, living or dead, if you go back far enough in time, you'll get to a common ancestor, something that was a a great-great-great-great-grandmother or grandfather of you and also of that other animal, whether it be a dog or an ant or an octopus or whatever. 
And the book Other Minds was organized around a particular feature of the Tree of Life, which is the extraordinary depth in time of the branching point that leads on one side to us and on the other side to octopuses. So, you know, you and an octopus have common ancestors, but in order to find a common ancestor or to find the most recent common ancestor of you and an octopus, you've got to go back about 600 million years, a really long time, not not a long time in the history of life as a whole, but a very long time in the history of animal life. Animals hadn't done that much before. There was something alive at that time, 600 million years ago, a little flattened worm possibly that lived in a population and divided into two, the population, not the individual worm. And then you had evolution proceeding down two different paths, lots of things happening, all sorts of novelties arising, extinctions. And eventually on one branch of that fork leading from the worm, there's you. And on another branch leading from that fork, there's the octopus. So that kind of depth of the common ancestry between you and octopuses and other cephalopods was the structural feature that guided the first of these books, Other Minds, where a special feature of a situation is that the branching is so deep in time, but octopuses are so complicated behaviorally and very likely, I think, they have experiences. They experience their lives just as just as we do. So they're a kind of independent evolutionary road or experiment in the evolution of complex behavior, having a mind, having experience. So that, that was what organized the book Other Minds. Then once one has that picture of that particular part of the tree of life in one's mind, it's natural then to look at more of the tree, to think about all animals, to think about the animal kingdom as a whole. The title of the book, Metazoa, refers to this. So the word, the word Metazoa is an old-fashioned word for the animal kingdom, roughly speaking, an old 19th century word for all of the animals, the animal kingdom. And the point of the book Metazoa is to trace the historical paths that connect not just us and octopuses, as in the earlier book, but us and all sorts of different animals. What unifies them genealogically, how they came to look so different and live so differently. So the aim is to sort of trace all those paths, but also to do that with a particular project in mind and a particular question in mind, which is how did it come to be that in animals, at least in some cases, you have an evolutionary transition that produces subjective experience or consciousness in a broad sense of that term. How did it come to be that a process of biological evolution with this tree-shaped structure gave rise some number of times? I mean, that's one of the big questions in the book. How often did it happen? Some number of times to animals that are conscious. Absolutely. Well, maybe we could define and characterize what we mean by consciousness because at the beginning of the book you do start to broadly define some of the terminology that you'll be using but also the limitations of the English language um, and scientific 
and philosophical language that we're using. So perhaps before we move into this in more depth, we could get a better understanding of the concepts that you're using and and how you define them, particularly the approach that you're saying that you're taking in the mind-body problem and looking at it in a biological sense. So yeah, I'd love to understand more the kind of philosophical underpinnings and the philosophical terminology that you're utilising. The mind-body problem in a broad sense, is just the problem of how minds can fit into a physical world, how they relate to bodies, where they're found. And there are different aspects to that. These days, today, the particular side of that question or family of questions that's taken to be most difficult and in some ways most important is how experience comes to exist and how there can be a a physical or material basis for that thing experience in the sense of felt experience or subjective experience. Now, a minute ago, I used the word consciousness, and that has become a common way in the literature of talking about this side of the mind-body problem. The word consciousness is understood in a very broad way where anything, be it an animal or a plant or a computer, anything is conscious in this broad sense if it feels like something to be that system or that that being, that animal or that computer, whatever it might be, the presence of feeling of any kind is taken to be sufficient for the thing being conscious. Now, I, I admit that that terminology has never sat 100% comfortably with me. And in some ways, it's a, it's a shift in the way people talk. The word consciousness, to me and to many people, suggests not just the presence of feeling of some kind, but a particularly complicated or sophisticated form of experience. And I think that's in some ways a very natural a very natural way of using the word conscious, but it's not the way that the literature and the debates use the word mostly at the moment. The word conscious is understood in, a, in this very broad way. So, for example, suppose you look at some squid in the water swimming along and, you know, they're startled by you and, and they they dart away. And you wonder to yourself, well, did it feel like something to have that moment of startledness and to perceive me and to react in the way they did? Was that experienced by the squid rather than just a kind of mechanical process that happened without being felt? That in a way is the big question in this area. And that's a fairly good way, I think, of thinking about the question that guides the book Metazoa. And that question would now very often be expressed by asking, was the squid conscious? Was there consciousness in the squid? Now, when I say that, if you think, well, the word consciousness suggests not just feeling, but a kind of, maybe a kind of here I am, explicit sense of oneself or something like that. If the word consciousness suggests that, then I I sympathize because I, I think in some ways it's a bit unfortunate that the word has been has had its meaning broadened in that way, but it has. It, it has has its meaning broadened in that way. So the questions addressed in the book would often be expressed by asking, where did consciousness come from? Which animals are conscious? Are plants conscious? Did consciousness arise just once in evolution or half a dozen times or, or, or more than that? Those are the questions, and they're equally well expressed by saying, 
Did felt experience arise just once? Which animals feel or experience their lives rather than just having things happen? Uh, what kind of evolutionary process gave rise to experience? This is all different language for asking essentially the same question. Absolutely. Well, perhaps I could also um, trouble you to explain to some of us who perhaps haven't come across it before what materialism means, because you do bring up uh, materialism and a couple of key philosophers and the previous debates that we've seen about um, duality and uh, materialism and how that connects into this discussion. Yes. Materialism is also a bit of a controversial word these days. Uh, What it refers to basically is the view that all there is in the universe is a world of, okay, and here here is why the word can be a bit of a problem, a, a world of matter and energy and the sorts of things that are at bottom or fundamentally physical goings on. And those physical goings on give rise to the things that you see in chemistry and biology and according to materialism, everything else as well, all the, all the mental or psychological phenomena along with those. The word materialism is a standard and fairly old word for a view of the universe, a view of nature in which everything that exists is at bottom physical in the sense of it being some kind of arrangement of matter and energy particles, chemicals, things like that. And in particular, there's no kind of addition of the kind that a soul would be or an immaterial god or spirit or something like that. It's the idea that all of the things that we think of as psychological phenomena, including conscious experience, can ultimately be explained in terms of the workings of biological systems, which are physical at bottom. Now, the word materialism, I said, is a little bit misleading because it suggests that there's just matter rather than matter plus energy and all sorts of things that are physically real but don't fit straightforwardly into a kind of intuitive picture of what matter and the material is. So the word physicalism is sometimes used instead of materialism for essentially the same view, the idea that there are no soul-like or mind-like extras. Everything that exists is some kind of arrangement of the physical. I prefer the word materialism for a, a couple of reasons, but it's fine also to use the word physicalism. The main opponent to this view in current discussion, or I guess there are several main opponents. Historically, the main opponent has been various kinds of dualism, the idea that there's the physical or material world, and that's one thing, but there's also in the universe some kind of mental or spiritual or psychological addition, which is not merely an arrangement of the physical. So dualism is the idea that there are two fundamental kinds of ingredients in nature. You might also be an idealist, and think that rather than trying to explain everything in terms of the physical or material, ultimately the universe as a whole is is mental or ideal or spiritual. And what we think of as the physical is a consequence of some kind of arrangement in some kind of experiential fundamental reality. 
There aren't too many idealists around these days. There are a few other positions, but I see my main opponent or the main dialogue is probably a better word than to use here than opponent. The main dialogue going on as one between views that think that the material is ultimately all there is and the mental can be fitted in as opposed to views that think that there has to be a kind of duality or a cleft or a basic divide between two totally different ingredients in the universe, one material and one mental. And so in terms of materialism and your understanding of it and thinking around it, does that mean that the way that thoughts arise and that we experience certain sensations and obviously our brain is plays a role in that does that mean that in your thinking and materialists uh, materialists thinking of it that those types of processes and thoughts and sensations could be put down to things like neurons and neurotransmitters and you know the nervous system for example is that the physical element that we're referring to and how that brings in the psychological or mental aspect yes that's basically right and that is a bit more controversial than it might initially sound. I think that once you're a materialist, you've then got to work out which kinds of physical things are the sorts of activities that are also thoughts and experiences and essentially brain processes, brain activities, the goings-on within nervous systems, are the obvious candidate and also the candidate that I prefer. Now, the, the part that's a bit more controversial concerns whether you could have experiences that are material in character but have a totally different basis, have a different kind of hardware than the hardware seen in the brain. And the obvious example to think about here is some kind of future AI system or robot that was so complicated in its workings that although made it a very different stuff, it also had what it takes to have experience. It would be a conscious system as well. I'm more skeptical about many of the claims that people make about the kind of ease or naturalness or inevitability of future artificially conscious systems. I'm more skeptical about that than a lot of people who write in this area. I tend to think that nervous systems and brains really are special in this connection. And one of the things that writing this book led me to was a view like that. I mean, as I wrote it and learnt more and more about our current view of what nervous systems are like and what they do, I came to think that they do things that would be very hard to replace, very hard to substitute some uh, some other process for. Mm, well, from a, a layperson's perspective, that um, intuitively makes a lot of sense to me as well. And having read this book and going along on the intellectual journey with you and starting with organisms like the sponge, for example, and then seeing how things have evolved. And we're starting from a very, very early point in the beginning of like living organisms, but you kind of take us through those scientific features, these key features and what these organisms have and don't have and then evolve to have. 
So I would like to ask about these different uh, organisms and species that you do eventually explore in great depth. And first up, from a a kind of big picture, top-down perspective, why are you focusing so much attention to the ocean, to sea creatures? Why are they so particularly special and pertinent to this exploration? They're particularly special and pertinent because... All of what I think of as the fundamental evolutionary processes here, all of the things that laid down the basics when trying to think about the evolution of the mind, those, those events all happened in the sea. They all happened before any animals had come up and begun living on land. It's not certain that life itself evolved in the sea, but it is pretty certain that animals came to exist first in the sea. And from there, that nervous systems evolved in the sea, eyes, uh, the kinds of bodies that can move through the environment and manipulate things and, and, you know, behave in complex ways, bodies of that kind evolved in the sea. The basics that were laid down that I think of as sufficient to explain the origin of experience Those basics were laid down in marine evolution. And as a consequence of that, it's natural in the book to go on a kind of journey. And the book, in some ways, is organized as if a person, the reader, was on a single long scuba dive, uh, encountering one animal after another. And as we encounter various animals, all of them marine, until the very last chapters, what we're seeing is present-day indicators of some of these very important early evolutionary events that gave rise to eyes and bodies and brains and nervous systems, all the things that matter. And as you say, we start with a sponge. Sponges are interesting because they are animals. They're very far from us on the tree. Uh, They may be of living animals, the furthest of all animals from us with respect to their gap from us, the the depth in time to which you must go to reach a common ancestor. So they are animals, but they don't have nervous systems. Uh, They're one of the few animals that don't have nervous systems. And when you, I mean, hangout's a bit of an odd word to use about (laughs) sponges, but when you spend time with sponges, you are spending time with, uh, you're, you're seeing what an animal can be like that has no nervous system at all. And they do have invisible, quiet processes. They can sense things. They have some very quiet and hard to discern behaviors. They filter water and they change how they do that. But they're not tied together in the way that other animals are and they can't act in the way that other animals are. So after we spend some time with a sponge, the next animal that is instructive to spend more time with is a coral. Uh, Corals and their relatives, anemones and jellyfish and so on, are members of a group that do have nervous systems. So a coral is an animal with a nervous system. When you look at a coral, well, when when you look at a coral, you're mostly looking at a colony of, of, of many, many thousands of little animals. But they all have their own nervous systems and they have muscle. They can act. They can behave in various ways. They have quite simple senses and they have a body that's organized not just superficially differently from ours, but in a deep sense, very differently from ours because their body has a kind of radial circular or cup-like design 
rather than the left-right design that animals like us have. And nervous systems probably evolved, almost certainly evolved, in an animal that didn't have the kind of left-right bilateral design that we have, but perhaps in something like that radial design. In one of the early chapters in the book, I spend quite a bit of time in the water at Nelson Bay, which is just north of Newcastle in New South Wales, in a soft coral garden. In a soft coral garden, if you don't move too quickly, if you stay and watch uh, patiently for a while, you can see tiny radially organized behaviors on the part of these animals, tiny reaching and grasping behaviors, reaching for food in the water. And watching these behaviors is seeing a kind of present day echo or indicator of a very important stage in the evolution of animals, which is the evolution of action and nervous systems and the senses that feed them. So in sponges and corals, we're looking at very distant relatives from us, an animal without a nervous system, and then some animals that do have nervous systems. They're not ancestors, they're present day beings, but they tell us something about what animals were like way back in these very early stages. Mm. Well, that's just so fascinating. And it does make me think of climate change and coral bleaching. And when you're talking about the nervous system of corals, does that mean that there are particularly ethical, there should be ethical concerns beyond just environmental concerns in terms of climate change leading to the destruction of corals, which is essentially an animal that has a nervous system? That's a good question. And I hadn't made that particular connection before with coral bleaching and the like. Right. It it takes us to one of the questions which is most enormous here and one that's not resolved in the book. And that question is, of the various animals around now, which are the ones that have the simplest nervous systems that nonetheless do have experience of some sort? Mm. You know, where does experience end if it ends as you move through animals with different kinds of nervous systems and then reach, for example, corals and anemones that do have nervous systems, but very small and simple ones. Uh, You know, I would love to give a really definite answer to this question, which I take to be the question, is there a kind of experience in a coral or is this a form of animal life that's just too simple from a neural point of view for even a tiny scrap or shred of experience to be present. My guess is is the latter, that they are too neurally simple for experience to be present. But when I say that, I'm very aware that in a way it's asking the question in the wrong way because it's asking the question in a way that assumes it's a yes or no matter, that you you either have experience or you don't, or you, you are conscious or you don't, And then the question will be, are shrimp conscious? Are octopuses conscious? Are corals conscious? Are sponges conscious? Yes or no in each case. I think it's very hard not to ask the question in that way, initially at least, and in a very coarse-grained way, the answer I would tentatively give is that shrimp are conscious, octopuses are, fish are, corals no, sponges no. That's kind of the the coarse-grained answer that I would give. But I'm very aware of the fact that 
to ask and answer the question that way is to treat the whole thing as as a sort of rather binary matter. It's, you know, presence versus absence. And it may well be that in the future, the theoretical framework we'll have, the kind of philosophical slash scientific framework that we employ will be one that recognizes a kind of spectrum here where there's a kind of glimmering of something in the corals as well. Now, to say that is not to say that there's a glimmering of something experiential in absolutely everything. So one view that I reject is the view known as panpsychism, which is the idea that all matter, everything, grains of sand, rocks, absolutely everything, all physical existence has a kind of tiny scrap or glimmer of mentality. I don't think that's true. I think that we're pretty much talking about animals uh, when we're trying to work out where the where the gradient starts or where the spectrum has its 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 uh, low value but real cases. Now, if it turned out that corals had a kind of faint glimmer of something like experience, then yes, it's true that the deaths of coral would take on a somewhat different significance from the significance that they now have. I think that people probably now often think that the death of a coral, even though a coral is an animal, is in some ways ethically similar to the death of a tree, where a tree is a living thing, it can do well or badly, uh, it makes sense to ask if it's healthy or unhealthy, stressed or not stressed. But if it's true that a tree doesn't have experience, that things don't feel painful or good to it, then it's kind of in a, di a different place with respect to ethical questions than animals for which it does make sense to ask, you know, is this thing suffering right now? Is it in pain? I think probably most people would assume that, uh, and I guess as we talk about this, I think, right, I guess I would say this too at the moment, that trees and corals, even though a tree is a plant and a coral is an animal, are sort of in the same place or have the same standing with respect to these ethical questions. And that contrasts with what's appropriate to ask in the case of things like shrimp and crabs and octopuses and so on. But as you say, uh, it may turn out that we end up revising our view of what's going on inside a coral as well. Mm, thank you for that answer. I know I put you on the spot there with the mental examination of it, but it did really spark in me that thought. And it also was sparked because of something you mentioned in your discussions of crustaceans, and that was also that there isn't really, um, I, I can't find the verbatim quote right now, but a shred of ethical consideration towards a number of crustaceans that we would eat and not really think about when we're killing them to be eaten. Yes, I think crustaceans, well, crustaceans plus octopuses are particularly important cases right now, but crustaceans more so because the numbers are, are so enormous. One of the surprises in recent biology and neuroscience is that there's pretty good evidence that crustaceans can feel pain in some cases. Hermit crabs are the cases where there's been quite convincing evidence of the presence of pain uh, in that kind of crustacean, but also in prawns and lobsters. There's a fair likelihood, I think, that these sorts of animals genuinely have experience. 
And that although you might think that eating animals that are sentient is fine, and I should say I think that in principle, in some circumstances, it is, it's at least appropriate to give them a totally different kind of consideration than the consideration that crustaceans have had typically up until now. Uh, it's routine in many contexts to boil these animals alive. Yeah. Um, I think that that starts to look like a, a very questionable practice, really something that should end uh, in the light of what's been discovered about those animals. There's a recent, there's a new paper actually, just just coming out as we speak almost uh, from Robin Crook's laboratory in San Francisco with even better evidence that octopuses can feel pain. This is a, a different level of, of sophistication with respect to the evidence than we have in the case of crustaceans. Although I think that the evidence is good in the case of crustaceans. So one of the things that the book ends up grappling with in the final chapters is just what kind of rethinking of our policies is important. I don't think that there's an easy but dramatic answer that we could embrace, such as, you know, every sentient animal has rights and should have its welfare respected, other things being equal. I think that's probably just oversimplifying too much. For example, the evidence for experience in insects is also pretty good. Uh, in some ways, not quite as good as it is in the case of crustaceans, which is quite an interesting fact because insects have, in many cases, much larger nervous systems, but their lives are very different. And to engage in a kind of full consideration of the welfare of insects would be uh, just you know, an extraordinarily radical shift in all sorts of our, our policies. That I think of as one of the sort of puzzling and hard cases in the case of crustaceans, I think in some ways it's puzzling and hard, but I think some things we could conclude fairly readily, such as we should not be boiling lobsters alive anymore. Well, it seems like a form of torture. If, if the science is showing that they can feel pain and they could, by that virtue, actually feel being burnt or boiled in water, it to me seems like that would be an obvious thing as well. I did want to touch on some of the anecdotes that you've provided in the book. As you say, it's like a scuba dive, really. And one of the anecdotes I really enjoyed was your visiting this shrimp. I think it was a banded shrimp that you visited. Um, and you say it's kind of funny that you would go and visit a shrimp, but you actually do go to this same spot quite a number of times to revisit that shrimp and that's because they don't actually move all that far from the spot that they're living in and I just wanted to yeah I just guess hear from you firsthand about your experiences observing that shrimp and interacting with it and what you learned and gleaned from from it and also from visiting it more than once. It was a very surprising series of events what happened was I went to a particular spot diving and came across a pair of these rather beautiful shrimp called banded shrimp, as you say. They're also known as barber's pole shrimps or barber pole shrimps. And that gives you a sense of their appearance where there's a kind of red and white stripe uh, going up and down like on an old fashioned barber pole. And there were two of them in a particular spot, fussing face to face endlessly, poking at each other, 
doing what looked like a sort of mixture of grooming and uh, communication of some kind. And I was very struck with how, how beautiful they were. And some months later, went back to the same spot and found just one shrimp there. And the thing about it that was fortunate for me, although not fortunate for the shrimp, was that it had lost one of its uh, very long claws. It was a one-armed shrimp, uh, whereas this species usually has two spectacularly long claws. This one had lost one. And that meant that when I went back repeatedly, and I did begin to go back to that spot repeatedly, I could recognize this individual because it was missing the same arm in every case. And I since learned that these animals, banded shrimp, are quite long-lived. They can live for about five years or more in aquarium contexts. They mate for life. They have a single partner who they meet and live with and are intensely territorial. So the two that I had met on that first dive probably had spent much of their lives in just perhaps a single square meter or cubic meter of water, just roaming around, eating, behaving in this very small space. Then when I went back and found that one had disappeared and the remaining shrimp had just one arm, it was, of course, natural to, uh, well, natural in some ways, <laughs> to visit it uh, repeatedly. And it was an important uh, experience because I can't claim that shrimps have the kind of engagement with humans that, for example, an octopus or a bird will or something like that, but it did respond to me in quite interesting ways. So I would reach out and, and touch a feeler and it would, it would sometimes sort of come down very quickly and sort of look at me, stare at me. I learned afterwards that this particular behavior, the, the sort of coming down to look at me, probably relates to the fact that these are cleaner animals, that they clean parasites off the bodies of larger animals like fish and, in this case, also turtles. So it was probably coming down to inspect me as a possible client for cleaning. And I didn't realize that when this began to happen. So I should have offered, offered it some parasites to eat off me or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it certainly, it certainly had a kind of engagement with me as an object and as a living thing, it seemed. So in the sort of sequence of chapters in the book, the, the sponge we encounter, an animal with no nervous system, with these faint, tiny, quasi-behaviours, then the coral with genuine behaviours, with muscle, with these reaching, grasping behaviours, The next stop in the journey is the shrimp, and it's a totally different sort of thing you're encountering. You're encountering an animal that can move rapidly, that can see you quite well. They have quite good eyes. They treat you like an object of interest in a way that is, of course, you know, more or less unthinkable in the case of the animals in the in the earlier chapters. And by the end of these visits, and it was a number of visits, I, I, I certainly had a certain amount of affection for this this small animal. Yeah, well, so did I reading it. It uh, was really a lovely story, if I can use that language. I wanted to pick up on your reference or linking, I guess, between crustaceans, uh, you call them these amiable crustaceans, as well as insects who are their relatives in some ways. What is that link between a crustacean 
and an insect because, you know, you, you did mention before that this birth of consciousness comes from the ocean and then, of course, we do eventually in the book get to land and, uh, of course, there are vertebrates on land and um, fascinating insects and a whole group of insects that are very social um, and, you know, grouped together. So I guess I just wanted to understand that leap and that link between the two. Yes, there was a there was a particular moment when I, I got out of the water one time, and it was after some visits, not so much with the banded shrimp, but with some hermit crabs. I'd been sort of hanging out with some hermit crabs, also at Nelson Bay. And when you hang out with hermit crabs, also I knew some of the science about them. I knew that there was quite good evidence uh, for the existence of of pain in hermit crabs that they probably do have experience. Uh, they're amusingly fussy and fidgety little animals that are sort of wary of people but sometimes seem to sort of spy on you. (laughs) In the case of those animals, given also their size and the sort of way in which they move, it's quite natural to think of them as having genuine experience, as being conscious in this broad sense of the word. And then I got out of the water and just had a thought that hadn't occurred to me beforehand, which is that Insects are a kind of evolutionary outgrowth from crustaceans. Now, the word crustacean is, in fact, no longer really an official biological word because it doesn't refer to a single branch of the evolutionary tree. And that fact is partly due to the fact that insects have kind of come out of that part of the tree. And we think of insects as being different from crustaceans. But insects are kind of a a sort of land-based evolutionary development of an earlier form that is roughly speaking a crustacean form. Insects are terrestrial explorers for the most part. They're mostly land-based that came out of marine crustaceans in evolutionary terms. Insects have large nervous systems uh, compared to crustaceans, even though they are in most cases, uh, or at least many cases, physically very small or smaller than crustaceans. And there was a kind of a gestalt switch when I thought to myself, right, if I've got used to the idea that crustaceans can be conscious in this broad sense, then given the relationships biologically between crustaceans and the vast numbers of insects around us on land, I have to take more seriously the idea that insects have genuine experiences as well. It's not for sure. It's not something implied from the facts about crustaceans. You have to think about the insects as their own thing and look at you know how they've evolved and what they have going on inside them. But it was a kind of a surprising shift. And one of the things I do in one of the later chapters is try to work out what kinds of quirks and novelties and peculiarities might have arisen in the lives and experiences of insects as a consequence of their transition from what's mostly a kind of slower paced and in many cases longer lived kind of way of being that they have in the sea to the kind of frantic, buzzing, often very short-lived kind of life they have on land. Well, it is really curious to think that they are related, you know, given that my initial response is that they are so different. 
but you do say that bees are sometimes compared to octopuses in a sort of cognitive contest between invertebrates. And then you go on to say that bees have much smaller brains, one cubic millimetre, but pack a great deal of complexity into that space and that any talk of a contest makes little sense here though. And then you go on to, I guess, talk about the, you know, the features of bees, for example, and honeybees, as well as bumblebees. But, you know, some people might think about consciousness and bees and I guess collective intelligence or group intelligence, and you use the word superorganism as well. And of course, ants are similarly grouped together and have, you know, a lot of social interactions. And, you know, social interactions is, you know, one of those things that you examine. So I wondered where you got to, particularly on land and looking at insects uh, like bees in terms of consciousness and and how that might operate and, you know, whether they might experience things like pain and, and what the implications are, particularly when we look at organisms and um, species that are particularly social and have a lot of complexity in their interactions. Yes. Starting with just the bee as individual, as you say, they have these they have these quite small brains in, in, in physical terms, cubic millimetre, but really extraordinary complexity packed into that, into that tiny space. The last few years has seen a sequence of experiments on what bees can do that have in common the fact that they show that bees are able to handle surprisingly abstract relationships between things that they sense. They're very good at dealing with abstract patterns, learning how to deal with the quite logically complicated features of situations that they can be confronted with, much more so than octopuses. I think that bees are really the not so much the masters, but the mistresses of abstraction among invertebrates. Now, here we're just talking about the individual bee. And as you say, there's also the question of the collective, which is a very, it's a big question in the case of honeybees, especially where you have this very socially organized unit, the hive or colony that does behave a bit like an organism in some ways and might be taken to have a kind of something like a mind of its own. Now here I have to say that all I could manage in this book, Metazoa, was to think about the individual one at a time and didn't really even grapple with the social. But there will be a third book in the series after Other Minds and then Metazoa. And that one's going to have to think about these collective cases, collective intelligence, group intelligence, what kind of relationship there is between the actions and the sensing and the processing of the individual bee or ant or human being and what is going on at the level of the colony or the collective or the social group. I, this is something I have to work out. I, I'm, I embrace the question, but I've been saving it for book three. Yeah, well, it does seem like uh, it would take a whole book to get to that point, um, to understand it and fully give it the recognition and depth and nuance that it deserves. I guess I want to conclude this conversation by looking at your conclusion and um, what you discuss at the end of the book and the journey that you bring us through in terms of your thinking and how you bring us on that that philosophical thought journey and you keep reminding us of where we've come from, how things have progressed, and then I guess where we end up. So from that 
that great function of the book, but also from an, an experience right now of talking about it, we've obviously touched on some of the key moments um, and you've done that really beautifully but from your perspective having looked at this picture you know really broadly and having thought about it in depth for so long where do you really get to in terms of consciousness in animals Uh, when we get to the land when we think about them both in the sea and the land what concluding observations do you make and what do you really want us the reader to take away from your thinking about this and obviously the science that supports it? The first takeaway or the first message, a conclusion that I came away with myself is the idea that there's a lot more experience around us than I had thought and I think that 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 many people think. Uh, there's a lot more complexity in animal lives and a lot more likely experience in those lives all around us than I had supposed. From there, some of the other takeaways are sort of hard to hard to go through quickly without us embarking on a whole additional conversation. One would be the idea that living activity, what's going on inside cells and brains and animals, is it's material, it's physical. The, the, the book winds up, I think, fairly squarely supporting a materialist picture. But there's a kind of peculiarity in the sorts of physical things going on within living systems, and also in particular within nervous systems, that I think has not been appreciated enough when thinking about the mind-body problem, and also when thinking about what kind of thing an animal is and what kind of thing animal life is. So I came away from it thinking differently about the sort of internal activities that are characteristic of animal life, thinking differently about the amount of experience around us and the depth in historical time of the evolutionary processes that that gave rise to experience. Those would be two two of the main things I would mention. And then a whole bunch of other questions. Uh, I mentioned that the third book will deal with groups as well as individuals. The third book will also have quite a lot about the, roughly speaking, the policy side, how we should rethink our relationships to other animals, how we should rethink our relationship to the environment in general, what kind of of inhabitant slash custodians we might be of the earth as a whole, and so on. So there were a lot of sort of questions and projects coming out of it, as well as those couple of conclusions or messages. Mm. Well, I've got to say, I have taken a lot from this book and it certainly has challenged me and challenged my preconceptions about what an animal is, what an animal experience might be, what levels of consciousness might exist in the animal world, and also the relationship between animals and human beings as they are now, as well as obviously these ethical considerations that you'll look to in the future in more depth. And I guess that's something that I really value about the study of philosophy and the history and philosophy of science is this ability to provide a different lens and also a a kind of a humanistic lens to science and also sometimes take away our human biases that keep on interfering with some of the conceptions we have of animals and you know sometimes oversimplifying them or or 
projecting human experiences onto animals. So thank you so much for challenging me and I'm sure many others to think about uh, animals in the animal world and also of consciousness. And uh, I can't wait to read the third book. Congratulations on what is a really wonderful piece of scholarship and thinking. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you too. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.